Okay. Um, no particular um, order of, um, how should you put it, uh, segments and uh, none, none of it particularly smoothly runs one into the other. So apologies uh, over. Let's just begin with uh, Boris Johnson and I know it's a boring phrase, but uh, party gate, um, along with beer gate and curry gate. Oh, God, say Watergate at least was uh, made some sort of sense. Anyway, um, I don't think that Boris Johnson is toast. Um, I was always sceptical about the idea of him being toast. But now that we've got a situation where he's been fined once, and that's it. I know we've got the Sue Gray report and a bit of argy-bargy there. But the electorate, ain't you or me, the electorate is the um, Parliamentary Conservative Party. And I think they're very unlikely at this present juncture to dump Boris Johnson. So Boris Johnson, you know, with one bound, he is free. Uh, he's going to remain prime minister. How long all political careers that's the famous phrase, end in failure, his undoubtedly will, just not yet. And I think that that was underlined by the fact that amongst those fined was his uh, chancellor, Rishi Sunak. Although he's not a drinker, he too uh, got a fixed uh, penalty notice. So I don't see any alternative. I don't see the Tories, uh, you know, pushing in their letters. I don't see Sue Gray delivering uh, an eviscerating report against Boris Johnson. I think there will be references to culture, and I think Boris Johnson will basically do humble pie in uh, the House of Commons and apologise and say it looks bad and things, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, we've got Keir Starmer um, already mentioned. I don't think he's going to get fined. The very fact that, um, was it three days after this film uh, surfaced of him, you know, knocking back a pint of beer and all the rest of it. The, it, it. the fact that it took him so long basically must have been a calculation. They must have been sitting there saying, do you think you're going to get fined, Sir Keir? And they looked at the evidence and they basically banked on him not being fined and therefore he puts in his offer of resignation. So although there will be this uh, banter in the House of Commons and although no doubt when the next election comes, whenever that's going to be, there will be references to character and all the rest of it. Um, you know, the chances are that the Tory party will be led uh, by Boris Johnson into the next election. I could be wrong, uh, but I don't think so. OK. No surprise. Um, opinion polls put Labour ahead uh, of the Tories. Uh, why is that? Partygate will play a very small part, um, I'm sure. Uh, but the main question um, why Labour is in the lead, I think, has to be, and I haven't looked at the, the details in terms of the polling, but surely it has to be uh, the cost of living uh, crisis. That's the main um, explanation. The fact that uh, Rishi Sunak didn't 
uh, do anything about pensions, didn't do anything about benefits, didn't do anything uh, uh, about wages in his last budget. Uh, clearly, uh, there you are, you've got the accusations, especially as he and his uh, wife are in the, uh, is it the um, Sunday Times top 200 rich list? They don't know how the other half of us, other half, ha ha ha, the rest of us uh, uh, live. Um, yeah, all of that, that's why. Okay, so uh, that really then takes me to um, what to do about it. And what we have, I think if I've got my facts right, I think if I've got my facts right, RMT, uh, the big transport union, is going to announce the results of its strike ballot on Wednesday. And I think the general expectation is uh, that they'll manage to jump the hoops uh, that the law lays down. And that is, it's a postal ballot. Yes, nowadays a postal ballot. Uh, and the stipulation, and I've got to get this one right, that 50% of the membership, not those that vote, but the membership actually vote in favour of industrial action. In other words, you know, what are we expecting on Wednesday? Well, 80%, 90% in favour of industrial action, but that isn't going to be enough. It has to be in terms of 50%, over 50% of the entire membership uh, of the RMT has to vote for such strike action. And we also have, of course, um, in that expectation, Grant Shapps, the uh, transport secretary, threatening yet more anti-trade union legislation, namely that when it comes to transport and other such uh, vital infrastructure, and transport, of course, is a vital infrastructure, that the unions <laughs> agree uh, to keep a Skellington service of some sort. I mean, I don't know the details, but keep the rails running. So you're meant to vote for strike action, and then you're meant to ensure that that strike action is only partially effective. So um, you're meant to have uh, the union itself organize scabbing. Uh, that's basically what the Tories are, uh, are demanding. Um, okay. So just a couple of um, uh, points um, on rail. Uh, uh, Grant um, Schapp says that, of course, well, the unions don't have that much power now because, um, well, basically people have the choice, don't they? They can get on a bus uh, and they can get into their car. Well, I don't know where you live, comrades, but uh, I live in London. And all I can tell you is if the rails stop operating London basically grinds to a halt. You cannot get on a bus. There are too many people to get on the buses. And what happens to people is that what would take them an hour before will take them two hours. Um, and therefore, in terms of what this vote is going to be, it's not just going to be one strike. Uh, it's going to be a whole series of strikes. That's how trade unions now organise their ballot um, because it's such a palaver um, and it's so difficult, uh, they put the question deliberately uh, to give them uh, room to organise a whole series 
uh, of strikes. So what we're expecting um, is not one strike, God help us, including um, in the midst of uh, Her Majesty's um, Jubilee uh, celebrations, we're expecting a series of strikes. And as I said, in London, in spite of working from home, in spite of uh, the greatly improved bus service that we have, thanks to Ken Livingston, um, the city uh, grinds to a halt. It's pretty bloody grindy to a halt anyway, um, you know, in rush hour. Uh, but as I said, without the underground, without the overground, um, in terms of getting into work and getting home from work, it becomes incredibly uh, problematic. And of course, what we have is a situation of uh, with the RMT, with the rail workers unions. This is one of the few areas left in Britain where you've got anything that resembles effective trade union trade unionism. You know, the workers can go on strike and it has a genuine economic uh, impact. Uh, and in spite of that, we also then hear in terms of our um, uh, Tory government um, in this time in the shape of um, the Minister of Education, he's threatening um, that um, the um, teachers unions will no longer um, have a monopoly on uh, representation when it comes to um, putting forward someone to go with you if you're in dispute with your employer. Um, and this is meant to be based on um, um, a survey that's just been done asking people, are you satisfied with uh, your union when it comes to such questions? And 28% said no. Well, that doesn't bloody well, excuse my Anglo-Saxon, surprise me whatsoever. Um, you know, we all know that in teaching, for example, a lot of people only join uh, the union because it provides them some sort of legal uh, protection. Uh, that's true with a lot of uh, workers uh, that they're in, they're in a union um, in case they uh, fall foul of the law or they're accused of something. And the union is there to provide them with legal representation, not a strike. Uh, not industrial action, uh, but legal uh, uh, support. So in other words, the union, uh, like so many uh, unions in Britain now, acts more as an insurance uh, policy uh, than it does in any sense uh, resembling uh, what I used to know <laughs> were trade unions, uh, i.e. shop stewards. Uh, and uh, if you sack someone, the chances are that the whole workforce will be out on strike until that's settled. That used to be industrial relations in Britain, really up to, uh, I would guess, the 1970s, when the Labour government um, incorporated the trade union bureaucracy and basically in return for greatly increased trade union membership levels, uh, it got rid of uh, the power uh, of trade unions and you went from a situation of where the shop steward would directly collect the trade union dues uh, from the members and therefore talk to all the members, see who's happy, see who's unhappy, see what's going on to a situation of where uh, the employer automatically docked your pay, paid it directly into the trade union account 
and industrial relations went to the level effectively of these things called, um, what do they call them? Industrial tribunals, the sort of lowest level of courts with some sort of judge uh, doing it. That suited the trade union bureaucracy, but disempowered uh, the working class. And of course, what's happened uh, since then is not only have trade unions become thoroughly bureaucratized in Britain, in spite of, I think, the workforce may be increasing uh, not just twice. Uh, I, I think the workforce went up from something like 12 million to 24 million. I think the workforce now is something like 30 million people. In spite of that, trade union membership has halved. And so we're dealing with bureaucratized trade unions uh, and we're dealing with the trade unions that are half the size uh, in spite of the massive increase in the workforce. So there are remaining pockets uh, of effective trade unionism uh, and one of them um, is the RMT, TUSA and uh, the train drivers union, um, ASLEF. And the Tories clearly are out to break that power. Whether they can do it or not, um, I'm at least sceptical about. Yes, the trade union bureaucracy will quiver and quake uh, if there's a threat to take away their headquarters, to freeze their bank accounts. That's certainly true. But we're not dealing with an equivalent of 1984-85, where they were preparing to basically destroy uh, the mining industry. Um, they're not going to destroy the transport um, industry um, nationally. So there's not going to be what we had in the 60s. Uh, Beecham, famous minister of transport, I think closed a third of Britain's railways. Might have been more than that. Uh, that's not going to happen. And certainly that cannot happen in London. And that matters to the bourgeoisie, uh, because in the heart of London, in the city of London, in spite of working from home, uh, this is what Britain is. Um, it's a finance centre, um, to use a phrase, with a, a medium-sized third-rate uh, industrial sector uh, attached uh, to it. So fundamentally, uh, British capitalism today is finance uh, capital, and that means London. I know there's Edinburgh and there are other centres, but it's the city of London with its lawyers, with its accountants, with its banks. And that uh, relies on bringing millions uh, of workers um, into central London. And um, if anyone visits London on a Sunday, go around the city of London, nothing, nothing is open. No pubs, no restaurants, it's dead. I think the population of the city of London is something like 2000, and that's deliberately kept down because only those people can vote uh, in elections. So this is um, a strange, strange, um, how should we put it, constitutional quirk, but that relies on huge numbers of workers coming in. How do they come in? Yes, bus, yes, bicycle, but crucially um, um, on the rails. Okay, so these battles will happen. Um, what the outcome will be, I don't know. Uh, but it is interesting uh, at the moment. Um, I'm just listening to some um, economists and uh, they're, they're making the claim, and this is interesting, isn't it, now in 2022, uh, that what we had in the 1970s is a situation where workers didn't fall behind in terms of their living standards because they had strong trade unions. 
That's an interesting one, because at the time we were told that inflation was due to strong trade unions. That was the uh, lie uh, that we were told throughout the 1970s uh, into the 80s. But now we have uh, the admission uh, that strong trade unions allowed workers to keep up uh, with inflation. And that is something we don't have now. And therefore, what we have is falling living standards. And um, I'm, I'm not making this as a prediction. I'm, I'm simply saying what I would expect under those circumstances is a revival of industrial militancy. I don't know what form it will take. It could take workers going into their existing trade unions, changing them, electing a new general secretary. Uh, I don't know. Um, but if it doesn't take that form, it will take other forms, and that will be unofficial industrial action, new forms of um, workers' solidarity, uh, maybe even going back to 19th century uh, forms of industrial action. I don't know, uh, but um, characters, I'm saying this in inverted commas, you know, like Captain Swing and Ned Ludd and Rebecca uh, spring to mind. Uh, in other words, you know, workers will be forced by their circumstances to act uh, in defense of their falling living standards. They will be forced uh, uh, to fight uh, for higher wages, whatever uh, the Tory government uh, attempts to do to stop them. Uh, workers will act um, one way um, or another. Does that mean uh, that we are due a new winter of discontent, there's talk of a summer of discontent. This, is, this goes back to uh, Britain uh, at the end of uh, the um, Labour government of uh, Wilson and Callaghan, um, when rank and file workers rebelled, not only against the government holding down pay, but the trade union bureaucracy holding down pay, and there was an explosion of spontaneous uh, industrial action. Uh, I don't know. Uh, but it wouldn't surprise me. All I would say, though, is that we should at least be cautious uh, in terms of welcoming such a prospect. I would welcome it, I hasten to add, but suffice to say uh, that what that led to politically was uh, Thatcher, Thatcher's government and uh, the anti-trade union laws uh, that she only uh, um, enforced, I think, in her second term. Um, she passed laws uh, in the House of Commons, um, but it was only really um, after the Falklands War general election, then they went hell for leather against the trade unions, crucially uh, the National Union of Mine Workers, which they broke, and they were quite prepared to um, toss aside uh, an entire industry, and that wasn't only uh, mines, a whole host of other industries were closed as Britain offshored um, along with the United States. Okay, Australia, I don't know enough about it. Um, suffice to say that we have uh, the defeat of the Liberal Country uh, Coalition. I think the Country Party is Queensland. Uh, either way, in terms of British, for British purposes, the Liberal Party is the Conservative Party. And what we've had in Australia is Scott Morrison, and you'd know Scott Morrison because he was the guy that basically lined up 
with Donald Trump, either belittling climate change or denying it and basically saying Australia should go ahead and, um, you know, keep digging out that coal, keep uh, generating uh, power with that coal, uh, keep, you know, going with extractive um, industries and basically saying that this whole climate scare stuff uh, was, you know, a bunch of, um, you know, weak-kneed liberals and uh, the urban elite and all the rest of it. Now, of course, it's a, a fundamental mistake to link some weather um, with um, climate. Nonetheless, in terms of the experience of the masses of Australia, when they switched on their TVs over the last years and see massive fires and massive heat, wave, heat waves, and then meteorologists turning around and say, well, of course, this isn't global warming as such, but this is why this is more frequent. They've taken note um, of it. And so therefore what you've got is a new prime minister that promises not to indulge uh, in um, climate wars. What difference um, a Labour government will make in Australia? I don't know. The mood music will certainly change. That's true. Whether there will be a fundamental change, I'm a lot more sceptical about. We're also told, uh, what's his name? Anthony Abenisi is a Republican. And um, there has been a referendum, an unsuccessful referendum in Australia about the monarchy. Uh, I don't expect him to organise another referendum. I could be wrong. Uh, but his basic message is, I want to bring Australians together. And I'm taking that as code word uh, for nothing controversial. And the fact of the matter is that what we're dealing with is a minority um, Labour Party. I don't know what the results are um, yet. I don't know if anyone knows what the exact results are. Uh, we know that um, Scott Morrison has conceded. Um, Either way, it looks like uh, the, the Labour government's going to rely on the Greens and independents uh, to get legislation passed. Um, one thing that I have read, um, that is that when it comes to foreign policy, there isn't going to be a change. So no change with nuclear um, submarine. And we're not talking about nuclear missiles. We're talking about nuclear powered submarines. And we're talking about membership of AUKUS, A-U-K-U-S, the alliance between Australia, UK and the United uh, States. And that's an anti-Chinese alliance. And that's big stuff in Australia. Um, uh, because you just look at the map, you just look at the trading patterns and uh, China is either one of the biggest, but I would guess the biggest trading partner uh, that Australia's got at the moment. And there's being a shift strategically away from that as the United States lines up to take on China. Um, and we need to see Ukraine in that light. And the left that cannot see that uh, sees nothing. Okay, let's move on. This is a very brief comment. Uh, we don't know what the judgment is. This is the Wagatha Christie. Uh, trial. This is a libel trial. You all know, at least if you live in Britain, what it's all about. It's two footballers' wives, uh, wives uh, and girlfriends. That's what WAG 
uh, stands for. This is the, uh, the mass press, but this is something that also features in the so-called quality press. Uh, I've been able to follow it, whether I like it or not, because I listen to the one o'clock BBC Radio 4 News, and they've had daily coverage of this uh, trial. Uh, so what's it all about? It's about someone called someone something, and that's about all I know about it. But what it reveals is something more about a dispute between two very rich people uh, who are able to spend literally millions on lawyers' uh, fees. What it tells you is something about the mass media and what the mass media will say, this trial and this culture sells newspapers and therefore we can get advertising in our newspapers. It also tells you something about masses of ordinary people that look to these people either as just something that is of purian interest, but also, and I think this isn't insignificant, as something to aspire either to a emulate in terms of their lifestyle, which of course is impossible, um, or to actually join. And that is possible for 0.000% of the population, i.e. young men can realistically, if you come from a poor background, realistically it's possible, and they do it, aspire to become a professional footballer. And when you list, you know, when you hear the wages of these people, you know, I hear figures, you know, so-and-so, so-and-so gets paid £250,000. I sort of shrug my shoulders and go, that's pretty good. And then I'm told, a week, a week. Yes, exactly. That's why uh, they can afford millions uh, when it comes to lawyers. Um, and then you have women. Women aspire uh, to become a wag, a wife or a girlfriend of a footballer. And... Uh, Wherever you live, you'll know the various clubs, the various venues of where young women will go because they also know that the local football team uh, go there after a match. And if you want to catch your footballer, that's where to go. And so millions of people yeah, look uh, to the newspapers, look to the websites and say, I want to have some of that. And you can talk if you want. Uh, about bread and circuses, and there will be an element of that. I won't go into the significance of ancient Rome and bread and circuses. Suffice to say, there's an element of that diversion um, of the masses into that culture. And communists shouldn't just dismiss it. We need to try to understand it in the same way you would in terms of what people listen to, in terms of music, uh, what they listen to, uh, in terms of radio, what they listen to or watch uh, on TV, etc. We need to be concerned with all aspects um, of life, all aspects uh, of uh, culture. So when we're looking at this, it's easy to take a sort of snooty uh, attitude, but I think that's wrong. Uh, we actually need to understand why it's popular and what role it plays uh, in uh, society. In the same way that if you were an ancient historian, uh, you would actually want to look at the bread ration uh, that Roman citizens were given as a right, along with the right uh, to attend the games. What was all that about, a serious historian would ask, and wouldn't just dismiss it um, uh, as a nothing. Okay, very quickly, no surprise, um, 
We've got uh, Liz Truss uh, rejecting the um, overtures, the pleas, the threats, call it what you will, I don't know what it was, of uh, Richard Neal, who's over here from the US Congress, presumably acting as a sort of outrider of Joe Biden. Uh, there isn't going to be a trade war tomorrow between Britain and the EU. There's certainly not going to be a trade war between the United States and Britain tomorrow. To me, this is, uh, how should you put it, a, a long dance. And uh, what it's about is squaring the impossible. You know, to me, once you had this agreement, sorry, I just can't help laughing. I've been laughing a long time. Once they came to the agreement that what they would do is go for a hard Brexit, but keep the Good Friday agreement, I just went, well, you, you can't do that. It doesn't work. You can't have an open border when you've got a hard border. Something has to give. So they go, OK, you have a hard border down the middle of the RSC. Well, you go, yeah, OK, well, can that hold? Um, well, not as far as the DUP is concerned. OK, they don't matter in the bigger scheme of things. Nonetheless, for a country, which Britain is, I'm talking about Great Britain, the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, to give it its proper name, is now divided uh, with a customs barrier down the middle of the North Sea. Well, given uh, the national question in Britain, uh, i.e. both Northern Ireland um, and Scotland, and the distinct possibility of Sinn Féin not only emerging as it's done as the biggest party in Northern Ireland, but the distinct possibility, surely, just in terms of opinion polls, it emerging as the biggest party south of the border as well. It shows you uh, that the integrity of the United Kingdom is in peril. And we would expect the Tory government of all governments to do something about it. How on earth they sort it out, I don't know. Uh, because it seems to me to be two inherently incompatible incompatibles have been joined together and hey here's the solution well it's like um, it's like a round square or uh, a square round you cannot do it so what happens I don't know uh, maybe the long-term solution that they end up going for uh, and again this is so long term that it's hardly worth talking about, but maybe a long-term solution is precisely a Sinn Féin government in all of Ireland that agrees to join NATO and allow NATO troops to be stationed in Ireland. But again, that's so far down the road and so much can happen. Uh, that's just idle talk, really, for me, so I'm not going to push my luck. I don't know how they're going to do it. That's the simple uh, answer. The crucial question from our point of view, though, isn't to try to second guess the Tories or what Sinn Féin does or what the DUP does. What we need and what our job in our own modest way, and we recognise our size and, you know, uh, the, you know, the smallness of our voice. But our job on the left is to come up with a working class solution. That's the, our job, not to provide how the Tories square the Good Friday agreement with Brexit or for call, for call like some sections of the left do, let's reverse Brexit uh, because this is a problem that the bourgeoisie face. No, we need a working class solution which needs a working class agent. And that's what's crucial. And what the working class needs in order to become an agent 
is its own foreign policy. And from at least my point of view, and historically that's been the position of most of the left most of the time, is that there needs to be a united Ireland. Um, and then they get into the argument, is this a bourgeois Ireland or whatever? But in my view, uh, for there to be united Ireland, you have to deal with the Protestant question. And those on the left that dismiss a million Protestants in the north, and that's where they live historically, as fascists, uh, that really doesn't help. It's like dismissing uh, the Israeli Jewish population and just saying, well, they're all, you know, Netanyahu supporters, um, i.e. Likud, uh, they're all Zionists, which they are, with almost without exception, but we need to change that. And that's the point um, of it. It's like looking at the Cossacks in the Russian Revolution. You have to come up with a solution. The Cossacks were a minor question. The Israeli Jews are a major question. And the Protestants in the North, British, Irish, call them what you will, are a major question. And in my own approach, I say that the working class ought to champion the possibility, the offer, right? The offer, nothing more, the offer of self-determination up to the right to separate. That's to assure people that we're not out to drive them into the sea. We're not out there to reverse the poles of oppression. And if you raise that, you have to raise territory. There's no escape from it. I'm not going to draw anything now, but if you don't draw lines on a map at some point, it's just bullshit. And what you're down to then is cultural autonomy, Austro-Marxism. Okay, maybe that is a solution. Um, I'm not dismissing that, uh, but I'm simply saying that if you really want to uh, reassure people that we're not going to oppress you, have that as part of your armory. Hopefully you'll never use it. Hopefully you'll never need to draw those lines on a map. Anyway, that's just my comment on that one. A quick comment. Um, normally I'm, I'm amongst my tasks, uh, amongst my um, tasks as a, um, a member of the PCC, uh, I have to read Socialist Worker and I have to read The Socialist. That's the paper of the Socialist Workers' Party and the paper of the Socialist Party in England and Wales. Socialist Worker is moderately more interesting. It has to be said. It's, it's not awful. It's, well, it's awful, but it's not that awful. Um, this, this is, Socialist Worker is designed to read like a left-wing version of the Daily Mirror or the Sun. So you have things like, um, you know, what is a country? And they will explain what a country is. What's class mean? Well, class mean is that sort of type uh, uh, level. Who are the Tories? Um, certainly when it comes to abroad, uh, it's that sort of stuff. Anyway, my main point is that the worst paper I have to read, and surely one of the worst papers ever produced, sorry, comrades, is The Socialist. Normally, I just look at it and go, who could edit such turgid, turgid, boring, boring paper, uh, in, you know, an insult uh, to the working class, an insult to socialism. Anyway, this week uh, they had a report of their Congress. This is the first live Congress they've had, uh, obviously, uh, since the COVID pandemic. And I read it, I read it end to end. 
And this is really in light of uh, our comrade Mike McNair's article um, in this week's uh, paper, you know, the spy cops in Britain infiltrating the left. Well, tell me something new. Uh, historically, MI5 had a whole department. That's why it's not mentioned in these reports to infiltrate and spy on the CPGB. I know it. Uh, we recruited, we recruited one of them, so we should know it. Anyway, my main point is that in the socialist, what you had is a report um, of all the debates, well, I should say debates, all the sessions um, uh, of the Congress. So it was opened by Conway, the new general secretary, Hannah Self. And Hannah told us that the world is on the edge of an explosion and socialism is really because people are very dissatisfied. Look at Sri Lanka. And then someone oh someone gets up and agrees with her and then someone else gets up and agrees with her. And then you have another session and it's given a report by, I don't know, Clive Heemskirk. And uh, then someone gets up and agrees with Clive and then someone else gets up and agrees with Clive. And then someone else gives a report on the women's question and someone gets up and agrees and then someone else gets up and agrees. And... Um, no votes of how no no report of how many people are there, what they represent, no mention of any other group on the left, and the fact that they've had a split internationally. Uh, in the meantime, they had a split in 2019, and they were the minority in the um, CWI, the Committee for a Workers International. And why did Peter Taft split it? It was purportedly from my memory over the women's question. That, that's a lie. Uh, Peter Taff has sponsored Panther UK to led to a disaster. So a black power venture that the black comrades went away and became black. Power. They sponsored, what was it, a campaign against domestic violence. This is all after they left the Labour Party and they left it. They didn't just get kicked out. Anyway, my main point would be that this was a colourless, useless report. It said what they thought, but it didn't tell you how they arrived at it, what arguments there were, what votes there were, were there minorities, what do the rest of the left think, how are their opponents in the international fairing, what was their assessment, why is it wrong, why were they a minority, nothing, nothing of that, and I, I'm, the reason why I raise this is, of course, um, because um, We've just had this um, exposure as part of this long going expose under this um, this judge inquiry. That's what they do when they kick it into the long grass in Britain, you know, about the infiltration of the left and how basically MI5 special branch, call it whatever you will, the secret state knew all about the left. It has to be said in 99 times out of 100, this information was completely useless because the groups that they were spying on mattered not to anybody you know they were so tiny the, the communist party of england marxist leninist most people here wouldn't even know that it ever existed um the fact of the matter is they were infiltrating you name it uh, they would collect names you know uh, they would most of the time the people doing the reporting didn't know what they were report reporting so i'm reminded uh, this is a little anecdote. I used to take tourists around London to raise money at one point for the paper, and I'd take them around Lenin's London, and I'd take them to a, a pub called the Crown and Woolpack, and I'd say, hey, there's the Crown and the Woolpack, let's go and have a look at that pub. Did you know this is where the Bolsheviks had their conference? 
And they would all go, no, no, no. And I'd say, did you know that throughout their three day conference, some British sergeant was under the stage? No, he didn't know that. Did you know what the British sergeant reported? He had to pee in a bucket. When he came out and reported to his masters, um, he said, uh, well, the problem was um, inspector, just making it up, Inspector Smith. They all spoke Russian throughout. And I don't understand any Russian. So there's been three days of people talking stuff I don't know anything about, but in Russian. Is that useful to you? No. And I could give you other anecdotes along those lines. So Mike McNair's experience was there he is in 1975. He was actually at this London IMG conference. The secret plod there didn't know what the hell anyone was talking about, knew what they said, but didn't understand anything. And that's normally the case. So again, another anecdote. Did you know that the Tsarist police um, infiltrated both the Mensheviks and the Bolsheviks? Yes, you did. Did you know what side they thought was more dangerous? It was the Mensheviks. And they said, oh, the Bolsheviks, they're good because they cause splits. This Lenin guy is great because he caused splits. Well, tell them that in um, October 1917. Anyway, my main point would be when we do matter, they can do stuff. So, for example, who knows about the Scottish Socialist Party, Martin Smith and the SWP, the statue uh, in the IST, International Socialist Tendency. Who knows? Who knows? They are there. But the idea that you don't report and this somehow strengthens you against the secret state is a complete delusion. And what it does, it takes bright people, kids in the main that they recruit from college, and it makes them politically stupid, that your job isn't to think, isn't to argue with the leadership, isn't to learn Marxism. It's your job is to agree with the leadership and then go out there and uh, act as a parrot, uh, which is what most of them do. And it's a terrible sight. You've got intelligent people uh, who behave in a stupid way. Um, so the left becomes a system of producing stupidity rather than producing intelligence. Anyway, that's my long um, uh, rant um, about my comrades in uh, the Socialist Party um, in England and Wales. Um, mention other groups. <laughs> it's just, mention disagreements. Deal with them. How did you arrive at these truths? Uh, surely elemental. Anyway, I'm just contrasting that with the tradition of Bolshevism and all the rest of it, Lenin, Trotsky, would all go into great detail uh, about their opponents, um, you know, both their, um, you know, near opponents and di more distant opponents uh, on the left. And that, that's great from our point of view, because we then start to see the bigger picture. We don't just see, you know, divine truth delivered from on high. Okay. Um, last point, and not because it's the least important, and that's Ukraine. Uh, we've had yet another um, um, Vladimir uh, Zelensky interview. This is on the occasion, he gives one every week, surely, doesn't he? Or at least five times a week. But this is on the occasion of the third anniversary of him becoming president. And what he tells us is that the Ukrainian forces have, quote, unquote, uh, broken the back of the Russian army. And um, what he's saying is they want everything back. Now, I interpret that as a Joe Biden, Boris Johnson message 
as opposed to a Macron-Schultz message. In other words, America, and then its Rottweiler uh, ally, um, United Kingdom, are pressing Ukraine, and Ukraine is a puppet. We need to understand that Ukraine has no self-determination. It relies on British laws. It relies on American javelins. It relies on American intelligence aircraft. It relies on American guidance systems. It relies on American finance, et cetera, et cetera. And if America decided that there's going to be a ceasefire and a settlement, it would impose it and it could do it extraordinarily quickly by saying, we're shutting off the arms supplies. So either you do a deal or you are for it. So America is actually in the driving seat and Britain is cooperating as closely as it can uh, with the United States um, in this uh, venture. And of course, it's the European countries, Eastern European countries, and um, crucially, Germany and France, but crucially Germany, the powerhouse of Europe, the economic powerhouse of uh, Europe, that is paying the price for this um, in terms of who's reliant on Russian oil, but crucially Russian gas. It's Germany. And America is quite prepared to sacrifice Germany and let it suffer in pursuit of its imperial ambitions to do what? Surround China and overcome its uh, strategic rival, which isn't Russia, it's China. That's the bigger picture. So when Zelensky says we want everything back, we all know what he means. He means Donbass. And crucially, what he means is um, the Crimea. And therefore, what he means is that it's America and its allies that determine Russia having access to the Black Sea and therefore access to the warm waters uh, of the Mediterranean. That's what's at stake um, in the immediate sense. But of course, also we know, and we didn't need to hear it really, did we? It just blurted out. We've heard it from a number of different sources. We know that's a historic game. They want regime change in Moscow. Well, inevitably they will get it in terms of uh, Putin being mortal, but we mean something bigger there, don't we? Um, Whether it's his deputy or not, what we want this is America, what we want is a pliant um, Kremlin, uh, not a defiant uh, Kremlin. We want a Kremlin that gives way uh, to America uh, and just becomes an American neo-colony, which was the danger, of course, uh, under Yeltsin. And so you had a massive economic collapse uh, and Russian power considerably reduced and distinct possibility of Russia itself let alone the former Soviet Union, just disintegrating um, into warlordism and um, mafiosa uh, uh, type uh, chaos and and anarchy. And it was the FSB uh, that acted and put Putin in um, as a regime uh, that would stabilize Russia and restore its great power uh, status. That is something America wants to put an end to. It doesn't want a challenge, but of course what it wants to do is drive on further. Um, Its ultimate aim, of course, is China. Okay, so just a couple of things um, on um, um, Ukraine. Yes, as often, uh, 
the steelworks has fallen. They didn't. <laughs> this isn't a Ukrainian withdrawal. This is a surrender. One of the few genuine victories is taking uh, this port city. Um, it is one of the few victories uh, of Russia. The rest of it has been grinding uh, fighting. Um, to all intents and purposes, we are dealing with uh, a war of attrition at the present time. That doesn't mean it couldn't change uh, from either side. America could put in more powerful weapons. That's a possibility. We don't see any signs of it yet, as far as I know. I'm talking about advanced fighter aircraft, uh, for example, um, more powerful uh, anti-shipping missiles. Uh, we've seen what Ukraine can do with American guidance, but, you know, trying to tip uh, the balance. But also Ukraine could suddenly suffer a defeat. We could see its eastern army surrounded. This is its, the cream of its fighting units and things could all change and we could see the intervention of NATO troops in the West. I don't know. But at the moment, it looks like a grinding war. We could see, for example, a general mobilization in Russia. Uh, that would also change the balance. But at the moment, things are going very well, at least from my angle, when I look at the United States and its uh, plans. Um, Russia's bogged down in a war. Um, we've scuppered a united Europe. We've subordinated France. We've subordinated Germany. Um, OK, India's problematic. Saudi Arabia isn't playing uh, ball at the moment. Either way, um, um, I think, um, I, I, I'd simply say this, I've never been of the view that uh, the decline of the United States has, has to be inexorable. Uh, to me, uh, it's like looking at the decline of uh, British hegemony. Uh, Britain won World War I. Uh, America, yes, won World War II. But Germany was defeated. Uh, Britain did win. It was extremely weakened. Uh, but nonetheless, it wasn't finished. Okay, I just want to add a couple of footnotes um, to that. How much time have I taken already? Right, I'm not going to speak uh, for more than an hour, so I know what time. I've got 10 minutes, and I'll fit this in there. Okay, I just wanted to comment on uh, the left um, on Ukraine, and just wanted to add in uh, stuff for us to look up and think about, and it's not much more than that. And that's, first of all, the appearance of Steve Sweeney. Uh, I'm not a reader of the Morning Star, so this is being delivered to me, um, I think, third hand. But the appearance of Steve Sweeney at a George Galloway Harple Bra rally. George Galloway, who he, former Labour MP, former Respect MP, um, leader now of something called the Worker, Workers' Party of Britain, which lined up with Nigel Farage on the Brexit vote. Uh, Harpal Brahu, he, uh, leader of the Stalin Society, um, leader of, former leader or chair of the Communist Party of Great Britain, Marxist-Leninist. And they've come together in this Workers' Party and anyway, they hold a rally on Ukraine. They are part of the pro-Kremlin left. Who turns up? This guy, who? Steve Sweeney, who he? He's the international editor of the Morning Star. Um, speaking in a personal capacity, I hasten to add. 
Um, what was he saying? Well, you don't need to ask, do you? Um, he's clearly part of the pro-Kremlin left. The Morning Star line, on the other hand, is um, soft social pacifism, stop the war coalition, universal peace under capitalism. If only bourgeois politicians could be reasonable and we could pressurize them enough, we'd be living in heaven uh, today. Interestingly, therefore, and I didn't note down his name, but I will look it up. We also have, interestingly, in the pages of the Morning Star, and I don't know how heavily that was edited or negotiated, a comrade from Glasgow Weissiel, uh, no less, writing a very militant article um, on the Ukraine war saying, well, well, I'm not, this article is not going to take sides, um, you know, in terms of pro-Ukraine and, you know, pro-Kremlin. I'm not going to do that. I'm simply going to attack capitalism. And what he did, he launched on a very healthy, I think, you know, politically crude, but very healthy tirade against capitalism uh, and the notion that you can have peace under capitalism. And um, yeah, and the slogan he put forward, the key slogan is no war, but the class war. Now, of course, you know, I do believe in wars of liberation and um, but nonetheless, uh, it's a good slogan. And I could easily march under that and I'd be grumbling a little bit going. Well, but nonetheless, the fact that it got into the Morning Star is good. Congratulations, Ben Chaco editor of the Morning Star, also a member of the Communist Party of Great no, Britain's um, executive committee, political committee. So good that you've got a different viewpoint and it's not explicit. Uh, you could read it in one way, but nonetheless, to me, this shows you there are differences in the CPB, not just, I don't know if Sweeney is actually a member of the CPB. It's quite possible he's not. Either way, that shows you what's inevitable. Uh, is you will have differences in such groups. Uh, what a pity uh, that this isn't openly expressed, you know, with uh, no diplomatic languages and we were just told the truth. That should be uh, the situation. I am not making it up. And that's the point I'm trying to say that uh, I, I did detect differences between the CPB and the YCL. I just thought that was obvious. This article reinforces it. The YCL statement on Ukraine reinforces it. And now we have the appearance of the international editor, even if he's not a member. And I'd be surprised if he wasn't a member, but it's quite conceivable. Turning up at a Harpo Bra stroke George Galloway uh, rally. It doesn't mean I agree with these people. I most certainly don't. Uh, but there are differences. And I just wanted to finally, in my last minute, thank you, and my last five minutes, um, just deal with um, our two correspondents in this week's paper. That's uh, our friends, um, Jerry Downing. I don't know if Jerry's here today and Tony Greenstein. And basically what they're saying is you said once, and that's the CPGB, I don't know in what guise, you said it's a defensive war on behalf of Russia with the implication, therefore you should line up with Putin and the Kremlin. Well, I just think this is bonkers. Yes, you can say it's a defensive war, but it's often wars are defensive wars on all sides. You cannot surely argue that on Ukraine's side that this war is anything other than defense. I'm talking literally from Zelensky's point of view, from Biden's point of view, the bigger strategic picture, that's a different thing. But from Zelensky's point of view, there he is with a bit of Donbass already carved out with Crimea declared part of Russia. 
it's a defensive war when a foreign army drives down the road towards your capital. It's a defensive war. So what? That's not Marxism. That's bourgeois morality. We've got nothing to do with Marxism. It doesn't lead us to any conclusion. You could say that NATO is conducting a defensive war. It's, it's irrelevant, totally irrelevant. What Marxism does is look at the classes, the politics on both sides that led to this war and evaluates a war according to that. So Tony quotes to me, uh, Lenin, I don't know when, from somewhere in World War I, I would guess, and says, look, if Persia, the old name of Iran, or China attack Russia, then we would support Persia or Russia. And I go, well, this is in a situation where Persia has been divided up between the British Empire and the Russian Empire, basically into two zones. We'll have this zone, uh, the Russian Empire says, we'll have its oil. You lot, you can have that lot of oil. China's being dismembered. And therefore, yes, if, if, if the Sun Yat-sen regime, the revolution of Sun Yat-sen resisted that dismemberment of China, we'd say that's justified because of the politics of national unity, resistance to foreign conquest, and in the same way of the revolution in Iran of 1905, a progressive revolution against the dismemberment uh, of their country by these two great imperial powers that just carved it up as if it was a piece of real estate. But think about this, in August 1914, Germany attacked first. There's no doubt about that. It attacked, it attacked through Belgium, violating its neutrality, drives into France in order uh, to, to repeat Bismarck and knock France out of the war with one blow, bang. And then it would turn um, on Russia. That would be the plan. And uh, Britain, which was a naval, not a, um, um, a land power, would sue for peace or, or something. That would be their plan. They knew otherwise they were going to lose. And Britain had been lining up Germany in that way ever since it joined the Triple Alliance. It had been planning to do its rival. So Germany acted as an aggressive power in defense. So what? Under those circumstances, this is what the comrades cannot get their head around. Communists in Britain, Marxists in Britain, term as we are for the defeat of the British Empire. That would be a progressive outcome for us. But that doesn't mean that you're for the victory. This is where they can't get it, that you're for the victory of the German Empire. OK, Connolly did, but we don't need to. And I can understand why Connolly did, but let's leave him aside. The point is you can be dual defeatist. And in Russia, you should be a defeatist. I'm not in Russia, right? I'm not in Russia. I am for the defeat of my own side, but that doesn't lead me to the position where I'm for the victory of Putin. To me, the fact that the comrades can't get it, I find amazing, uh, given the whole literature uh, that there is uh, in terms of Marxism and the question of war and peace, and how you cannot have a stable peace under capitalism. And in terms of the Marxist attitude, it isn't about who's big, who's weak, who's strong, who attacked first, who's defending. That's not the point. It's the politics. We do not support the politics of Boris Johnson. We do not support the politics of Keir, uh, Sir Keir. 
we do not support the politics of Putin. We want the overthrow of his politics. We do not support the politics of Joe Biden or Donald Trump. We want the defeat of America, but that does not lead us to therefore the victory of Zelensky, who's a puppet of America at the present time. Anyway, thank you, Anne. Um, there you are, dead on time. How impressive is that? One hour.